we are going to start Isaiah tonight. And if Isaiah is anything like anything else, we won't finish it probably until the fall feasts. Just saying. A couple things, sort of as historical background, and I'm sure most of you know all this, but I want to get it on the recording. Isaiah, obviously, is a prophet. He prophesied in Israel from about 740 B.C. to maybe... 686 B.C., so about 75 years. It'll tell you the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, when he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Speculation is that he was actually killed by Manasseh, and both the Muslims and the Jews say that he was martyred by being sawn in half, which doesn't sound like fun. He's writing during a time when Israel is becoming apostate. He writes before the Assyrian exile. You remember there's two exiles, the Assyrian exile, the Babylonian exile. The northern kingdom goes into exile by the Assyrians, and then about 100, 125 years later, the southern kingdom goes into exile to Babylon. So it's split. He is writing before all that happens, one of the things that he does is he prophesies about Cyrus, who is going to let Judah come back from Babylon. He does a lot of prophesying about what Christians believe is the Messiah, Yeshua. Jews, on the other hand, believe that all of that is about Israel. So there's some controversy there who he's talking about. And as I say, I, I happen to be a Christian, and I believe that he's talking about the Messiah, but if you talk to a rabbi that knows his stuff, he will take you to the same passage and say, no, 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 that's not talking about the Messiah at all, that's talking about Israel. There is some controversy about the authorship of the book. Various scholars opine that the book is either in two or three parts by two or three different authors. We call it Isaiah, Deutero-Isaiah, and Yeshua references Isaiah in the New Testament. And he calls Isaiah prophet, and he quotes both from early Isaiah and late Isaiah in doing that. So from my perspective is if the Messiah says that Isaiah wrote early and late, as far as I'm concerned, Isaiah wrote the whole thing. One other speculation is there may have been the same guy writing but a gap of about 15 years in the middle of his ministry. And if that's true, would certainly lend credence to a difference in style. In other words, if you wrote and then quit writing for about 15 years and then picked it up again, it's certainly understandable that your style might change. Don't have any idea whether that's true or not. From my perspective, as I say, Yeshua refers to early and late Isaiah as the prophet Isaiah. So... Isaiah it is, as far as I'm concerned. You guys may do whatever you like. There's a number of sections in here, and I'm not going to go through them all. But the first six chapters, if you will, are an indictment of Judah and Jerusalem. But Judah and Jerusalem don't go into exile right away. So apparently they pay some attention. Later on, he'll prophesy against Israel, the northern kingdom, Isaiah 6 where you have the commissioning of Isaiah, 
when he has a vision and he is in the throne room of God and he says, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips and so forth. The charge that God gives to Isaiah is to speak to the people in ways that they will not understand. And this is a big theme of mine. Those of you who have been around it a long time have heard it many, many times. The job of a prophet is to tell the people the truth and depending on whether or not there is the possibility of repentance, either to tell them the truth in a way that will cause them to repent, or if there isn't any possibility of repentance and God has decided you guys are going into exile, then what the prophet will do will be speak in parables. And you only recognize what the parables are as you're sitting on your butt in Babylon looking back, reading the parable. Yeshua does this. Yeshua in that sense is a straight up the middle Old Testament prophet in addition to being the Messiah. The break occurs in Matthew chapter 13. And before Matthew 13, Yeshua speaks plainly, calls them to repentance, tells them what they need to do, etc. Then in Matthew 13, what happens is they attribute the wonders that he does to Beelzebub. And at that point, Yeshua switches into code speak. And that's where we get the parable of the sower, and the rest of the book is in parables. And his disciples have no idea what's going on. In fact, with the parable of the sower, they say, what are you talking about? And he has to take them off to one side and explain the parable of the sower to them. And the deal is, up until Matthew 13, he is operating under the assumption that maybe they'll listen to me and maybe they'll repent and we don't have to do this exile business. After Matthew 13, he says, didn't work. So I got a bunch of stuff I still have to tell them, but I'm going to tell it to them in a way that they will not understand it until they are looking back from exile and they read it in exile. Isaiah does the same thing. So a lot of his prophecies are difficult to understand and the reason they're difficult to understand is because God tells him in Isaiah chapter 6, people's ears have grown dull, their hearts are heavy, you keep talking to them but they will not understand you and they will not repent and they're going into exile. So as we go through Isaiah, it is perfectly understandable that there would be differences of opinion as to what it means because quite a bit of it is in parable kind of language. It is not clear. In the Sunday church, Christian church, Messianic church, however you want to describe us, we see it as, this is very clear, we're talking about the Messiah here. The Jews don't. These are not stupid people, and these are not people who don't care. And at this point in exile, at least most of the rabbis are not in rebellion. The problem is the language is, in many cases, difficult. And again, I will go to the parables of Yeshua, where Yeshua gives the parable of the sower. Once I have the explanation, boy, that's really clear. How come they couldn't see that? But even his disciples at the time did not understand what he was talking about. So when you talk about Isaiah, you get honest people who look at the same passage of Scripture and get two different meanings. So chapter 1, verse 1 again. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children I have reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. 
An ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know, my people do not understand. So first off, hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, two witnesses. And calling heaven and earth as witness is in the Torah all over the place. So if you've got two witnesses, and God is saying, I have reared up children, but they've rebelled against me. Understand that we're right now in Exodus in the Torah, and you have the birth of a nation, and God calls Israel his firstborn. So Israel becomes God's firstborn at the Exodus. So what God is talking about here when he's talking about his children is he's talking about Israel in the same language that Moses used in Exodus. Have I talked about children of God lately? One of the things that you will hear among people who don't read the Bible, who accuse people who do read the Bible of being hypocritical, whenever in a political argument somebody brings up the Bible, it's typically brought up by someone who doesn't actually believe the Bible and is used as a way to beat people who do believe the Bible over the head with Bible soundbites. And one of the things they will say is, we are all children of God. Wrong. That is not what Scripture says. What Scripture says is we are all made in the image of God. That it does say. But children of God are explicitly Israel and believers in the Messiah. Because in, for example, Hebrews, several places, but Hebrews is a good place to start, it says what he gave us was the right to become children of God. So if you are in the Messiah, you are in fact a child of God because Yeshua is your brother and Yeshua is the Son of God, and if you are his brother, you are therefore children of God. But the idea that all of humanity are children of God is not biblical. So as people argue with you and throw that up, you can absolutely agree with them we're all made in the image of God. That's true. Actually, it's not true. Who's made in the image of God? Adam. Adam's children are made in the image of Adam. And Grant, by the way, had a very nice explanation of that when he gave a sermon a couple months ago where he was talking about what happened with Adam as we developed an autocorrect, like your phone does autocorrect when you type things in, tries to figure out what you actually mean and type ahead of you. And what we developed is an autocorrect feature where we hear the word of God, but we change the words to mean what we want it to mean. So children of Adam have the autocorrect feature. Adam, before he fell, did not. And the other thing he says is an ox knows its owner and a donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. And the question that you should ask as you're thinking about that is, what don't they understand? Notice it doesn't say my people are ignorant. It does say they're in rebellion. But what is it they don't understand? In context, they don't know who their father is. And certainly that may be the case But the idea that they have rebelled against him doesn't indicate that they don't know who he is. It indicates that they don't want to obey him. That would be the textbook definition of rebellion. It's not that you don't know who the sovereign is. I just don't want to obey him. What I think they don't understand is that the best deal they're going to get is from their father. And everything else, although it may superficially seem more attractive at the moment you decide it, 
is eventually going to be a far worse deal than what God will give you. Idols purport to give you the desires of your heart in a way that shortcuts the requirements that God has, which is that you obey his word. The whole purpose of an idol is there's something I want, and I don't think I'm going to be able to get it from God through normal channels, which is to say working hard, planting in the spring, waiting for the things to grow, doing my reaping, and and the blessing of God then is that I have a good crop. No, what I actually want to do is just go to the store and get my bread. I don't want to do all this other stuff. Hence, an idol promises you instant gratification as opposed to delayed gratification, and I'm suggesting that the thing that they don't understand is the instant gratification promised by an idol is in the long run destructive. You'll talk in a minute about, I really don't want your sacrifices anymore or any of that kind of stuff. So they are doing the stuff that the Torah commands them to do. It is not that they're ignorant. They don't understand that the quick gratification promised by an idol is not in fact good for you and is ultimately destructive. Verse four, ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, Children who deal corruptly, they have forsaken the Lord, they have despised the Holy One of Israel, they are utterly estranged. Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint, from the sole of the foot even to the head. There is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds, they are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. What he's saying here, he will say it, different ways later and it becomes a very common thread among the prophets. There are a few people in Israel who are doing really well and they are doing really well through wickedness and by oppressing their brothers. So the idea that you've got bruises and sores and raw wounds and nobody is pressing them out or binding them up or softening them with oil speaks to me that you have a society that has become thoroughly corrupt. The idea here that the whole nation has become bruised and not bound up, what he's talking about is that the elites in the nation have oppressed and stolen from the people and are dealing unjustly. Hence the word that he uses is the people laden with iniquity. Now you can look at that two ways. You can look at it as everybody is iniquitous. In other words, everybody carries iniquity with them, you know, laden with iniquity. We're all carrying our little bag of iniquity around with us, like a little load. Or you can look at it as the country is laden with iniquity, which means that the people below are being oppressed by the iniquity of those above them. Unjust weights and measures, all sorts of things that are forbidden in Scripture. You want to see lots of conspicuous wealth, go to the elites in any of these slave nations. Zimbabwe is now Rhodesia. You go there, Mugabe was a billionaire, flew around in his own private jet, had money stashed away in Swiss bank accounts, and inflation in his country is at the point where you open up your wallet and the bills in your wallet are in billions of whatever their currency is. Inflation is so bad, but Mugabe was doing just fine, as were his inner circle. In a communist country, the rich get rich and the poor get poorer. 
in a capitalist country, the rich get rich and the poor get richer. What I'm saying is that is a very common thread throughout prophecy, to include Isaiah. So, for example, Malachi talks about the fact that the priests have become corrupt and the priests are fleecing the sheep instead of taking care of them. Isaiah will talk about the same thing. So in any sinful nation, take the United States, we could be a poster child. You have a great many people in the United States that are doing their level best to follow God as they understand it, but the nation is not. What we're seeing in the United States is politicians that go into politics and wind up becoming very wealthy. And the way they do it is by taking covert bribes. And they do it by oppressing the people. As he will say in just a minute, I don't want any more of your new moons. I don't want any more of your festivals. I don't want any more of your sacrifices. It stinks to me. It tells me that the country is doing the form of following Torah. Now, why would you do the form of following Torah if you didn't really believe it? as a way to keep small people down and fleece it. Look at us, you know, we're doing the sacrifices and all that kind of stuff. Now, we are totally corrupt up here. But all you people who still believe this stuff, you can come to the temple and we can do sacrifices and we can do all of the trappings of religion for you people who are, what did they call them, bitter clears? Isn't that what Obama called those of us who believe in the God of Abraham? Bitterly clinging. And so you have these public spectacles, in this case, of sacrifice and tithing to the priest and all that kind of thing. And what I'm suggesting to you is the elites don't really believe it anymore, but the ceremonies and the forms are useful for keeping those who do believe obedient. And let me use an example. I have a good friend who's a Catholic, does not care at all for the current pope, and says, well, I didn't stop being an American when they elected Obama. I'm not going to stop being a Catholic because of this Pope. She is a believer. She is faithful. I'm sure she goes to confession. And she believes that even though her priest might be a sodomite, he is in fact authorized to take confession. She's very sincere. And the fact that the hierarchy of the church is becoming more and more corrupt doesn't phase her belief that the Catholic Church is a true religion and that's the religion she is going to follow and she is going to take communion, she is going to do confession, she's going to do all of the offices of the Catholic Church demands because to her they are meaningful. She is taking those sacraments in sincerity and faith but in many cases the hierarchy of her church is doing it cynically. So you have in Israel, I am suggesting, probably most of the people are sincere. And in fact, we see that Judah doesn't go into exile right away. They last another hundred years. But what you have is the society as a whole has become corrupt. And what I'm saying is a fish rots from the head down. That's not precisely what this says, but it will be what it said later. All the way down to verse 7. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate, as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. That is prophetic. Because at this point in the book, that has not yet happened. So he is 
seeing the corruption, and he is then seeing what the consequences of that corruption are going to be. Verse 9, if the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. So this is future. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom, give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Notice we're talking about two things, the rulers and then the people. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocation. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feast my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, see justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's case. Now, a couple of things. Obviously, all of the things that have become an abomination to God are things that he himself has commanded them to do. And obviously, the problem here is that the rituals of the temple are being used, A, insincerely, or B, as a method of control by the elites of those who are still faithful. In other words, we own the temple. In order to do anything in the temple, you got to come through us. And if you don't come through us, then you don't get to use the temple. Understand, these are all things God has commanded them to do. But what's happened is they have turned those things that God has commanded them to do into symbols of violence and oppression. And one of the things that he says, down in verse 16, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove all the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Notice evil of your deeds. Cease to do evil, learn to do good. Those are two different things. Stop doing evil. That's thing one. Knock it off. But then thing two is there are good things that I want you to be doing. So don't just stop doing evil, but turn around and start doing the good things that I have told you to do. Those are two different concepts. And a lot of people think that ceasing to do evil is enough. That is not the case. Ceasing to do evil is the first step. More important, then, is learning to do good. Very often, the Sunday church will come to this part of Isaiah and say, See, see, God doesn't really want that stuff and keep reading. It says, when you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. So it isn't just the sacrificial trappings of the Torah that he is upset with. He is also upset with their prayers. And I don't think you'll find a single Sunday church grower who says prayer has been done away with. I'm not trying to be snarky. That's not my point here. The point is that It is improper exegesis to say that he has done away with the sacrifice, but the prayer is okay. He's done away with it all here because the people have become corrupt. The problem here is the sacrifices are being made insincerely. Cease to do evil, learn to do good. Then you have seek justice, correct oppression, 
bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's case. One of the things that God gets really chapped about is those who oppress what I would call his poster children of the helpless, the widow, the fatherless, and the stranger. Because none of those three has anybody in society to take up their cause, which means that they are then in a position where they are easy to abuse. Take, for example, how many young girls do you know that decide that they want to go off and find their fortune in the big city? What very often happens to those young girls when they get off the bus in the big city? They get picked up by a pimp, and they get sold into slavery. The point is, these are people who are vulnerable. They don't have anybody around them to protect them. They walk into a strange city, not knowing their way around, and they immediately get scarfed up by somebody for bad purposes. So what God is saying here is, my poster children for those vulnerable people are widows, orphans, and strangers. If you are oppressing widows, orphans, and strangers, your sacrifices become a stench in my nostrils. The bottom line of all of this is cease to do evil, learn to do good, and then correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, and plead the widow's cause. So all of this is a summary of why he's upset in the previous however many verses. is because that's what they're doing. Verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. If you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. What he's saying here is, I've seen your sins. They are a scarlet stain. Your sacrifices have become a stench in my nostrils. I'm not listening to your prayers anymore. And the reason I'm not listening to your prayers anymore is because of your behavior. What you are doing to the poster children of the helpless. However, if you stop it, then start to do good, then start to pursue justice, then your obedience of the Torah will be to me as a sweet savor instead of a stench in my nostrils. It's not the doing of the Torah per se that's the problem, it's the fact that they are doing it hypocritically. They are just doing the form of Torah, they are not doing the substance of Torah, which means cease doing evil, do good, protect the helpless. Have the Torah written on your heart. Without the backbone of the Torah, love becomes entirely subjective. And love is what I feel. And it doesn't matter what's happening around me as long as I'm doing it in love. The Torah says, this is how you behave, and this is what loving your neighbor looks like practically. You will not cheat him. You will not covet his wife. You will not have dishonest weights and measures. All of these things that are in the Torah are the implementing instructions for love your neighbor. And without those implementing instructions, love your neighbor becomes simply gooey sentimentalism. It is fundamental to everything that God says in the entire Bible. You don't take advantage of the helpless. 